You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. I took German in high school, and I don't remember any of it. We, <laughs> I think we both treated uh, world language as a subject, yes. right? Not yep. as uh, something that was an integrated part of our education. And uh, today in our podcast, we interview Juan Cabrera, the superintendent of the El Paso Independent School District, and he talks about dual language in a way that's just fully integrated into every part of the education, where even content is taught in uh, both English and, and, in their case, Spanish. But right. we're, we're seeing in places like Houston, uh, a city embrace dual language and offer many different languages, and that seems like such a gift. Absolutely. So Juan has that background, doesn't he, from his family? Juan uh, grew up in a dual language household and then became an ELL teacher, a, a, a bilingual instructor, and then went on and had this fantastic career as a lawyer and software executive. So he knows firsthand that uh, a world language is part of global competence today. Interesting. Well, let's hear what you guys had to talk about. We're with uh, Juan Cabrera, the superintendent of El Paso ISD. Welcome to the Smart Farm. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Juan, you've got such an interesting story. Uh, you've been superintendent in El Paso for three years, but uh, like me, you're a, a non-traditional superintendent. And today we want to talk about, uh, in particular, about your dual language program in El Paso. We had the chance to visit uh, two of your uh, dual language schools a couple weeks ago, and we've we've written about it. And uh, you, you have such an interesting background on this story. So uh, I want to talk about your experience as a, a teacher, but even before that, you were really raised in a dual language home. Yes, I was blessed. Uh, and actually, I'd, probably folks wouldn't have thought it was at the time, but uh, my grandparents on my mother's side didn't speak English. And uh, so as my parents, both teachers, went to work, I spent my, my days with them in my first five years of my life. And my parents decided to uh, continue to, to push that forward. They mixed in some English, but essentially, you know, at the age of five or six, I was predominantly a Spanish speaker with a little bit of English introduced to me by my parents, again, teachers. But with my grandparents and with other family, it was only Spanish. What about elementary school? What was that experience like? Was that all English? It, it, it was initially, it was challenging, you know, so the time that I went to school, bilingual ed had not really, uh, it wasn't what it is today in terms of the federal and, and national support for, the, for those sorts of programs. This would have been in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. I think it was just beginning to come, you know, to fruition in terms of the research. So I had primarily English, but then what they did is they, they spoke to me in Spanish at home. So it was, it was not dual language in the way we talk about it now in El Paso ISD and, and other districts that are trying to do that. It definitely was a home-based home uh, dual language curriculum. So fast forward, you were trained as, a, as an English teacher. So what, um, how did that happen? What was the inspiration for that? Actually, I was, a, I was trained as a bilingual educator. So I, I took it upon myself, you know, this is now into the late 80s, uh, and I decided to go, you know, follow my parents in education. And I was very passionate about, I'd had some experience with my father working in, in migrant camps in the 70s in California during the same time. And some of the work then is different than it is now for the, these, these were kids that many of their families wouldn't allow them to go to school. 
because they needed more hands in the family to be sure they could, you know, make make money. And I think that that experience with these folks that at that time spoke primarily Spanish, it, it lit in me the interest. You know, it sort of inspired me to go to become a bilingual educator and and to go work in some challenging communities in San Antonio and in Austin. I did that in California as well. I, I taught here in Northern California for a year. Did your, your parents approve of the choice of being a bilingual educator? What did they think about it? I, you know, I, I don't know that we any of us thought it was going to be forever. I kind of thought of it as my way to give back to the community before I went off. I was really passionate about business and I wanted to be a lawyer, but I thought this would be something good to do in my 20s. And then if I if it, if it you know if I stayed in it it was fine I, they wouldn't be upset but uh, I always thought it was going to be something I'd do for a few years and go on. So you went to law school. Went to law school in my late twenties. Where did you go to law school? To the University of Texas in at, at Austin. So you there were probably was a period of time where you didn't speak much Spanish. Is that true? You know it's funny actually there was it was a time before that it was more in undergrad where um, you know after. Even in high school, I was in Northern California. I didn't speak, you know, Spanish except with my grandparents or if I needed to. I was in Northern California. It was, you know, pretty much a, a white suburb, and there wasn't many Spanish speakers around where we lived. And then uh, in college, undergrad, not as much. I really forced myself to pick it up to go study to be a bilingual educator and take the exams and have to. There's an oral part to that exam, obviously. So what 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 you know, began to really bring out the Spanish in me again was at times a bilingual teacher because I taught first grade. So the kids that came to me didn't speak any English. So I had those children that were completely Spanish dominant. And those three, three, four years doing that actually helped. I was just amazed. And, you know, I'd had sort of this dark period of, of eight to 10 years where I didn't really do a lot of Spanish. And the words that I could say without even realizing that I knew them was just interesting. It started, I started thinking about the brain and how it works and the fact that I could articulate and really have conversations all day long with these kids and their families. And many times I didn't know where the words were coming from. And that time, as an adult, really digging deep into Spanish made me realize how important it was. So we fast forward, and uh, you you had the chance to become a software executive. You were a, a senior executive for a, a multinational software company. Well, uh, tell us about some of your posts in that role. Well, actually, if you if you let me just go back a bit, I didn't be I became a senior executive there, but first started as a lawyer, and and I, I said I think I mentioned this to you before. I was in these you know couple very large law firms and looking around the table at one point something, a light bulb went off, and I realized that, you know, nobody in these boardrooms that I'm in can speak Spanish, or these war rooms that we're doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions, corporate technology law. And I thought to myself, why am I not pursuing an opportunity that requires me to speak another language? And after my fifth year at a big big law firm practice, I saw an opportunity where, where a large software company, a $2 billion software company was looking for a lawyer to open their Latin American legal offices. They were having trouble. This was Sarbanes-Oxley kind of after the Enron era, having trouble with the books and managing some of these offices. They wanted somebody that had some corporate law background but also spoke Spanish. I don't think it was a long list of people that applied. And I saw that as a chance to exploit my language and differentiate myself from my peers. You know, I went to a great law school, which helped me get, you know, uh, high, high up. 
um, senior position at, at some big law firms, but still I wasn't differentiating myself in any way other than working harder. Uh, and there's a lot of smart people at those big firms. So I jumped on that opportunity and I started in, in, as a lawyer in Latin America and I opened, they didn't have any lawyers on, on post anywhere basically in Latin America. But after what happened at Enron and whatnot in Texas, firms became really focused on that side of the business. And I hired two lawyers in Mexico, two lawyers in Brazil, and one lawyer in Argentina. And we primarily made money in those three countries, but we also had 17 other countries that we managed out of those three. So if you were doing business in Brazil, uh, that is Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't, at that point, speak Portuguese. Had never spoken Portuguese. And uh, interesting, this is you know nothing that I think is scientifically based in terms of research and learning languages, but... My first two times there, I noticed that all of the Americans, and even there was other Hispanics, they required the Brazilians to speak English to them. And I asked them from the day one, I said, can you speak Portuguese to me? And I'm going to do my best to try to grasp it. And, you know, within a seven to 10 day period, contextually, I could put together, you know, Spanish words. And I'd always try to have, I would watch what people were doing and speak in the language, you know. And I could pick up a lot. And, and within, you know, two or three weeks, I felt very comfortable. Within a couple of months, I could go to negotiation with some of our Portuguese lawyers. All of a sudden, I could read it. And, and certainly within six months, I was, you know, essentially fluent in Portuguese. Now, I will say that the first couple of months, I had some headaches. And it was, seemed like the, the days were tough and challenging right. intellectually. Yeah, really. I, I didn't expect that. I mean, really is that, tired. Is that really <laughs> the first time that you fully appreciated this this uh, full immersion approach to language acquisition? I, I think it was. I mean, there's no, I didn't realize what had happened to me as a child. In fact, the story I told earlier about my grandmother, I hadn't reflected on that until after the Portuguese experience in Brazil. So after South America, then it was Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's a flood of languages, right? Absolutely. And I, I was really excited. So when I went to, to Amsterdam to work for the same company and actually manage all the lawyers outside of U.S., they had two different divisions. They made about a billion in revenue in the U.S. and about a billion outside the U.S., but much harder to manage. If you can imagine in the U.S., you know, it's one language and one set of contracts. Uh, for the other billion we made outside the U.S., we had 18 languages and we were in 52 countries. Now, like anything, the majority of the revenue came from, you know, 15 or 20 of those countries, but still, we had to manage and have a presence. So I had lawyers in probably... 15 of those countries, you know, 10 or 15 of those countries. And, you know, of course, you, you know the big ones. It's, it's Germany, it's, it's Japan, it's uh, Australia, uh, you know, most of all Western Europe. We still had, had our lawyers in Latin America. And uh, what was fascinating about it, I will say this interesting, the only language that brought us all together was English. So all of those individuals spoke their native language plus English. So they were all at a minimum bilingual. But more interestingly is the majority of my European colleagues were multilingual. Right. You, you, uh, it wasn't unusual to find families that were promoting four, five languages at home. I, I, I tell everyone the story about one couple that, you know, a Portuguese woman and a Swedish man that were both EU, uh, they worked at the EU, and uh, they had their kids in seven languages. The two that they spoke, English, of course, they could learn at school. And then uh, German, French, Spanish, and Dutch, because we lived in Holland. They are raising real global <laughs> Seven citizens. Seven languages. 
and the girls could do it. Uh, I met them when they were probably about eight and nine, the girls, and they could fire off all those. And I think that, I mean, that taught me a lot also in watching all these, these you know, living internationally and, and really language was a big part of what we did, both written and spoken, and watching how many countries embrace language as an economic driver as something that really uh, not only created opportunity for businesses, but actually created protection for businesses. There were people that could speak multiple languages were, were almost like a, like a security asset because you knew that you know we're an American company, but we're subject to market risk and cultural in, uh, risk in different countries. So language actually becomes almost like an insurance policy. The more languages your team can speak, I think um, chances are higher that you can protect your revenue and protect your market in these other countries. So let's fast forward. Uh, for family reasons, you, you moved back to Texas, uh, started a law firm. And after a few years of that, you have this unusual opportunity to become superintendent in El Paso. End of a, a really tough uh, crisis situation in El Paso. And a board of managers is looking for somebody that has skills to navigate a, a really complicated situation. And, and so you become a superintendent there. What was the status of language instruction when, when you got to El Paso three years ago? You know, uh, El Paso was really unique in that I think that driven by accountability in our state, which, you know, 30 years ago, I would consider Texas kind of as the home of, of the, you know, NCLB. I mean, it all started in Texas 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, we, we, we can test in two languages the fifth grade, but at the end of the day, the accountability, the kids really have to be strong in English, have to be fluent in English. And I think that over the last 15, 20 years in Texas drove the majority of school districts in Texas to an early exit transition model where the goal was English as fast as possible. Um, interestingly enough, in the midst of all of that, El Paso ISD did have a dual language program in just three schools, one elementary, one middle and, and one high school, and, and interestingly, did it very, very well in that particular feeder pattern. That's Mesita Elementary and Wiggs Middle School onto El Paso High School. And that feeder pattern had a, a great partnership with UTEP. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they've got a great linguistics department led by Dr. Elena Izquierdo uh, at UTEP. And so when we looked at the scores there and the model and what they were doing and the fluency of kids from multiple background. Um, I think 30% of those kids are not uh, Hispanic. It's just amazing how many other, how many families, uh, primarily white families, are interested in, in the multilingualism. So let's describe that, uh, that elementary dual language program at uh, Mesitas. It's, it's really a 50-50 program, right? It's full yes. immersion, and it's two-way. What, what do you mean by two-way? Well, two-way is, is great. This is something that I'm very excited about and hoping that, that this really is the, the bilingual education model of the future. So in a two-way dual language model, the preference is to have a classroom of children, let's just say it's Spanish and English in this case, where half the kids speak Spanish and the other half speak English as their native language. And two-way means that they're also, so you, there's two languages being taught with a goal that they're academically and linguistically fluent in two languages. The goal is not to exit to one language. 
The goal is that our monolingual English speakers become fluent in English and Spanish and vice versa. I like how the Masitas educators think about the entering language skills in whatever language it is as the platform that helps them acquire uh, new literacy skills in another language. Absolutely. It's, and it's, in, in other schools, you see them uh, asked to forget that, right, to leave it behind. And, and I, I, I love the idea of the, the two-way acquisition that happens at Masitas. I mean, it's, it's basically you know, a simple premise that we're taking every skill that a child is bringing from home and leveraging that to, to go ahead and build on that. And the research is clear that that can happen. I mean, language and, I mean, words, irrespective of what language you're learned in, do begin to build right. some fluency for children. Right? The, the, it's the foundation of literacy. Now, we saw uh, some great dual language uh, classes at El Paso High School. And in most high schools, we think of world language as a class, something that you'll go take, but that you you would take all your content courses in English. And at El Paso High, there's uh, we, we visited uh, a ninth grade STEM class that was uh, fully dual language, very high tech, um, a blended program, both in terms of language and technology. That was really exciting. I, I can't tell. I mean, we've, I've been in that classroom probably 10 times, and it's something that you know, work, working on, on uh, putting together a TED Talk, and I, we want to feature that classroom and, and talk about, you know, the fact that this is just not about ordering food in another language or, you know, being able to, to get by, you know, when you go to a different country, as, as you mentioned, in what we would expect to happen in a traditional language class, a French class or Spanish. But the fact that they're learning content and then getting into really technical content in Spanish that is so exciting because then, then we truly are doing uh, that, what you mentioned earlier at Mesita, where you're building on, on the fluency of the native language and then using that as a bridge or as a spring into learning another language. And then when you get in these technical discussions and collaborations that the kids are doing in this particular classroom, you really see the power of multilingualism. But the other part of that is that, and, and I, this is the research that needs to be done because we need to capture this information and this data. What we don't know about this is, is what does it do, the fact that you're learning in, in two or more languages, what does it do in terms of your overall intellectual capacity and your ability to learn not only languages, but anything else that you might be exposed to? I, I, I'm certain of it for myself that um, I wouldn't be the person I was in terms of my intellect if I hadn't been exposed to, to different languages than be able to to then acquire more languages. There's got to be something to that in terms of research, the I, brain I research. I thought about that at El Paso High when I saw a, a group of Anglo students um, engaged in a design thinking exercise in Spanish uh, with a group of students that uh, had Spanish as their first language. So they're really, they're thinking and designing in Spanish. And that's such a gift, right? It's not a compartmentalized, another class that they're taking. They're actually... Uh, doing really important work in a in a new language. Absolutely, and I think that if you spend some time, and, and we hadn't had a chance to do this in, during in the last couple of visits you've had to El Paso, but uh, and I don't know why this fascinates me so much, but when you have the blonde uh, the blonde haired blue eyed kid that comes to me and just riffs in Spanish and can go anywhere intellectually in terms of you know doesn't matter the content area or what we're discussing there. 
Spanish is beautiful. And then that's primarily a function of the two-way because the great part about the two-way is, I mean, we're both big believers in, in PBL and collaborative learning. Well, there's no better collaboration than learning this two-way languages in respect to the content with a peer. Right. So it's not this lecture modality, this, this linear, you know, one-dimensional instruction that we think, we all think is, is not, you know, we don't, none of us think that that's the best thing to do for kids. We know that that, that uh, one-way instruction, if you will, this, this one-dimensional, as opposed to having a 3D or 4D model, like to say, in terms of creative thinking and collaboration and problem solving, that's essentially the core of two-way instruction, right? The fact that you recognize that a key pillar in the instructional model are these children learning from each other. So, Juan, some people would say that this whole dual language thing is really just pandering to immigrants. Is that how you see it? I thought about that, and I think that's a very interesting point. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. You know, you have a lot of English-only advocates here in this country, and uh, you, you know, there was laws passed similar to one in California 10 or 15 years ago. And I do think that many folks would consider multilingual, uh, bilingual or multilingual instruction in our public schools some sort of a, of, you know, a disgrace. Or, for example, to say, wow, now that's very liberal because you're trying to teach these kids multiple languages. This is America. We speak English. You know, we shouldn't teach our kid. We shouldn't have our kids learn languages just to be able to speak to immigrants. They need to speak English and the immigrants need to speak English. I'm not, I don't want to have that discussion. That's a, that's a long podcast for another discussion. Here's my point. Let's take everything to be true, all of those statements to be true. My argument is it's not about pandering to immigrants. Whether or not they can speak to immigrants, honestly, that's not my concern. My concern is do our kids, will our children have more economic opportunities, one, by being multilingual, and two, do our kids expand their intellectual capacity by learning multiple languages in, in, in multiple content areas or actually neutral to content uh, in these early years. And if, if like these children that I met in Europe can do seven languages before they're five right. years old, doesn't that say that we're potentially leaving a lot of our intellectual capacity on the table if we don't expose children to languages or the arts as much as we possibly can? So dual language doesn't imply lower standards? Absolutely not. In I mean, fact, you really think uh, we can and should encourage students to achieve high levels of literacy in, in multiple languages? You bring up a very good point. In fact, one of the coaching tips that we give, we're trying to expand dual language. We, we've started dual language down all 58 elementaries. Since I've been there, we took the Mesita model and we're trying to expand it across 58 elementaries, nine of the 16 middles and then into at least four or five of the, high, the 10 high schools. But, and, and so I've had a lot of families recently move into our district just for this dual language program. But the coaching tip that I give my principals and our teachers, and even if I get to speak to a family, it's very important and it ties to the question you had. It's, it's a long answer, but tell them, please be patient. Don't judge your child based on their second and third or fourth grade peers. All the research that we've done at EPISD in this one feeder pattern and research that we've read is that initially, if you're teaching kids multiple languages, you start at kindergarten, they may not score as high in English on the accountability measures which start in third grade in Texas. But by middle school, they're completely blown away the monolingual uh, English peers. I mean, it's not even close. 
and we think it's because of those foundational years, they're still grasping, you know, they're, they're trying to fit two, two languages into their brain, and, and they may not, by the third grade, be, it's not necessarily true. Some of our kids are so intelligent, they do fine right. in English. And this, but, you know, what that, those kids can do that the other kids can't, the monolingual kids can't do? They could take the accountability test in two languages. So for my money, let's say that they're about 70 or 80% of where they should be academically in English. But the fact that they can take two, two, uh, the test in two languages, one, and two, the fact that all of the data shows us is by middle school, fifth grade by middle school, they're far surpassing their monolingual peers, and they're doing it in two languages. The Masita team said that they, they even have to have this conversation with immigrant parents, that it's often immigrant parents that come and are concerned about their student learning English as fast as possible and and only want instruction in English. So it's, right, it's uh, some of your detractors you're talking to, but in some cases you're trying to make this case to, to immigrant families in, in their homes, right? And, and, you know, I think it's part of the, you know, the culture. I, I think this, this English-only rhetoric that we have that's often, you know, heard around our country, I think it's obvious to me that this must get to some of these families because I myself had conversations with those, ki- with those kids and families, and you're 100% right. We oftentimes have to convince them that dual language is better for their kids and that they're going to have more economic opportunities and be fluent in both if we do it this way. But many families are convinced that if they don't do English immersion, that their kids won't be successful in America. And, it, and, and I can tell you that in many, many cases, if we hadn't sat and had that conversation, the, the, these are immigrant parents that wouldn't have allowed their kids to have any Spanish instruction and clearly the research shows us that that's, a, that's not good for these children. You also make the economic argument that this is important for families and for communities. Absolutely. I think, you know, and this is not just about the local community, although I do think, especially in a city like El Paso, that's, you know, on the border to, um, to one of the largest cities in Mexico and, and clearly a benefit to anyone that can speak two languages there. But it goes, it goes you know, much larger than that. As I said earlier, I think two languages gives you the foundation for more languages, uh, just as I was able to experience and, and grow in other languages. But more importantly, it's about also being truly global citizens. If somebody thinks, or, or if folks don't understand that in this economy, this technology-rich global economy, that it benefits you to speak two or more languages, then I don't think you're really paying attention to where this country's going. I mean, this is now the knowledge economy. America's lost their manufacturing base and the strength and the prowess. And we built this country on the backs of manufacturing, right? The, the, the iconic uh, business people that did that in America, those days are almost all but gone. And even in America today, many of our strongest companies are, are built by immigrants that came to America. We know that. I mean, some of our strongest Silicon Valley companies and others. So the economic issue to me is that not only does it create opportunity for a child, but a de- taking a defensive posture, I think America is going to fall further and further behind in the knowledge economy if we don't teach multilingually, if we don't uh, embrace multilingual instruction starting at, in kindergarten. So th- this is an, I- an issue that takes real uh, leadership support. And the, the team at uh, Masita really appreciates your leadership on this, and you appreciate your board's leadership. This is really dual language is a priority for your trustees. Absolutely. In fact, I, I think you know, we recently 
built a strategic plan with student learning goals. And I'm very excited that the board has decided, uh, again, when we're answering the question, what should an EPIC student know and be able to do? Of the uh, five goals that we have, one of those is effective bilingual communicators. And the fact that we've called that out and we're saying that this is important to us as a district. And let me share with you the other four so you can you know, understand that we're not watering down the rest of the work. Uh, those would be critical, knowledgeable, and creative thinkers. Uh, we think that's important, and we think that active learning helps us do that. Informed problem solvers, again, something that we think that comes from, from an active learning environment. Responsible leaders and productive citizens, that's a pretty unique goal. You know, that's not what you would consider core content, but something that we're trying to focus on. You know, what is the obligation of a school system in America today? And this last one also, socially and emotionally intelligent individuals feel very, very strongly that the social emotional intelligence of our children is really the foundation of their success in professional and personal life. And that if we help them, again, which is great, this is the, the all of these can happen in an integrated way so that if we use collaborative project-based learning, team-based learning, we hope that that helps children become socially, emotionally stronger because they're forced to communicate with their peers at a very early age. Oh, and by the way, that's a tenant and undercurrent in an effective two-way bilingual program, which is collaborating with your peers. So what I love about this work is that our student learning goals actually are all intertwined with the foundation of collaboration. And we know that if a child learns in that way, rather than the traditional memorization lecture mode, that they potentially have the opportunity to expand their, their intellectual and academic potential, we think, many, many times over. Um, let's, let's close and just uh, by talking about where you see this headed uh, from here. So um, first of all, how is this growing in El Paso? And then... Um, do you see this as, as something that will be in every school at some point, or uh, how do you think about it locally, and, uh, and what, what do you think should happen in uh, Texas and across the country? Well, what I'm seeing that's very exciting, this is you know, only, only three years of pushing this, we're beginning to see a shift where, for the first time, the majority of our monolingual English speakers are choosing to be in the two-way dual language program. I didn't expect that that would happen this fast, so that's something that's very exciting uh, for those parents to recognize that even if they don't speak Spanish at home, they want their monolingual-speaking children to learn Spanish at school. And they know that the program is created to be fluent in two languages. This is not taking a Spanish class in high school, as you mentioned. It's truly academic and linguistic fluency in two languages. So that's exciting. We're seeing that happen. Um, the community's embracing it so much so that we're trying to potentially expand the high school and middle school options. Right now, we think geographically we've got it all covered. What's interesting about this is that we've got some neighborhoods that are primarily ELL neighborhoods where, where our, we have English language learners, but we still, we still have folks there you know, wanting to try to do two-way. So we, the few families that we have that speak English only, you know, we, we get them in there. So then what happens is you might have a one-way dual language program, but that's still different than a traditional bilingual because the kids get English from day one. So for those folks that are worried that we're not, you know, the goal wouldn't be to have English speakers, clearly 
That is not our goal. They need to understand that we are expecting high standards and high performance in English and in Spanish. We just are, the research shows us and we're convinced of the two-way language or speaking in two languages early on is going to give them a better chance being successful in two languages. So you'd like to see dual language programs be available to every family in El Paso, every family in Texas, absolutely, every family uh, in the country. And that, that could be dual language in Spanish, it could be in French, it could be in in Chinese, but, but you think uh, access to one or more dual language programs is something every family should have. Absolutely. I think it should be, I would think it'd be a requirement like one of our four core subjects. I can't imagine that, that you know we couldn't, over time, convince people of that. This is what I would call the learning behind the learning, right? So if we already know that we have to be strong in at least four academic content areas, I mean, that's sort of the base of American education. Rather than taking linguistics as one class in high school as a requirement to graduate, what if we started teaching children in two or three languages early on without in any way watering down the English academic content requirements? So I'm not, this is not um, either or. This is uh, both and, right? So it's both and. So real, that, that's my expectation. What if we could tell you, Mr. and Mrs. Um, American, that we could educate your child to be strong in all the academic content areas in English. Oh, and by the way, maybe learn two or three languages at the same time and uh, potentially seriously expand their academic and intellectual potential because of that. That's the new bargain. Juan Cabrera, uh, El Paso superintendent, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. We've had a chance over the last year to study this subject of language acquisition. Uh, With some support from the Gates Foundation, we developed a guide to supporting English language learners with next-gen tools. It was a fascinating look at all the new edtech tools and strategies teachers are using to promote uh, language acquisition. And then recently, we partnered with VIF International on uh, a blog series and bundle called Getting Smart on Global Education and Equity. Right. So be sure to check those out on gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Kat. And Tom. Signing off.